Welcome back to another episode of Musically Inclined. My name is Colby Van Camp here with Jesse Kaiser and Ryan Hernandez. It's been a heck of a week for Musically Inclined. A heck of two weeks, actually, rather. It's uh, because we had the Dragon Slayer, Ben Wade, on the show from Survivor. And then he also is a music teacher and a professional trumpet player. And he conducts the Susanville Symphony. And he just does a lot of really cool stuff in his spare time uh, and as like a job as well. And that was a really cool just motivational speaker kind of thing that I feel like every musician probably needed to hear some of. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, go give it a listen. If you need some motivation in your life, definitely go give that one a listen. It's, it's fire. Uh, maybe go listen to his TEDx talk as well. Cause it's a, it's a really good TEDx talk, um, to, to cap everything off. And then of course, we had just an unbelievable experience with uh, Christopher Tin this last week, and he was very kind enough, the two-time Grammy Award-winning composer of soundtracks that you have definitely heard of from the game's civilization. Um, he's released multiple albums of music. He's worked on films. He's just a multimedia composer that does a lot of fantastic stuff. Um, he came on the show with us last week, super gracious of him to do that, sat down, recorded with us, and just had a great old time all around. So it was uh, it was really humbling to be able to sit down and kind of pick his brain about some things. And now today, it's just the three of us, the uh, the trio of weirdos, I suppose. I don't know. A tenor, a baritone, and a bass walk into a radio booth. Yeah. <laughs> This is what happens. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, you've you've hit the nail on the head with that one. But uh, so today we're going to be talking about there was an article that was dropped uh, by Early Music America. And uh, again, to plug another episode, David Wood, who we had on the on the show a couple of weeks ago, he is one of the main guys at Early Music America. So go check out his work as well. It's really great. But um, Christopher Lowry who is a kind of a, a, an opera singer, choral singer, countertenor, and wrote an article called Canto. Let's talk about the English choral tradition. And it was published by Early Music America. And generally there was this, I, it came down to the idea of, is there, should we be straight toning music? Should we not be straight toning music? What's healthy for the singer? What isn't healthy for the singer? What does the choral tradition call for? There's some historical context in there. They talked about the, the choral ensemble Voces 8, which is one of the greatest ensembles in the world right now. They're just unbelievable. Uh, Christopher Tin recorded with them on his most recent album, had wonderful things to say about them. So I, it, I guess we're going to kick it off just in this way, impressions of the article, because I, I thought it was an interesting read, but at the same time, um, there are just some things that it it separated that I said, OK, that's kind of interesting. But uh, part of me is like, why are we getting so into the weeds about this? I mean, there's choral traditions. People do things different ways unless you're like killing your singers. I mean, does it matter? I mean, what what's the big what's the big deal? Um, and, hey, and I say that as a professional choral singer, I've sung in multiple professional ensembles. I've recorded with professional ensembles. I know Ryan has. I know Jesse has. We've all done this in some capacity or another with paying gigs. Right. They're paying gigs. Um, and so I, I'm just going to I'm going to set it off to Ryan because I saw his finger come up first in my periphery. So, Ryan, go ahead and, and kick us off. Oh, yeah. You know, I have things to say about this, because <laughs> as someone who is both a solo singer and an ensemble singer who tends to lead towards solo tone you know I like to describe myself as someone in a choral setting who sweats like a whore in church because <laughs> blending and hiding myself is not easy you wouldn't believe that the five foot five tenor is the one who has trouble hiding yeah it's always the five foot five tenor they're the one who stick out like sore thumbs yeah well and there's there's so much that goes into this conversation from a technical standpoint that just wasn't covered in this article yeah. it, was, it was kind of like a blanket statement about don't straight tone it or well, yes straight tone it or I'd, I'd. my impression of this was he didn't even pick a side he he just says he fence sat 
he sat on the fence the whole time because he said results may vary and that's okay. And that bothered me because sure, that's fine. You know, the abstract or like, you know, the header of the article was that we're turning out generalist singers, you know, kind of jack of all trades. They can do it all. And for me, yeah, that's great. You should be able to do it all because nowadays the whole talk of building a professional career off of performing is that you can do as many things as possible. Like you're not just a lyric tenor singing lyric tenor roles because then you're going to get shoeboxed into not making a lot of money and not having job security. Yeah, there's like three operas that you'll be paid to do all the time. And they're all Mozart and terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, you're never you're never going to get a job yeah. if you're just a, a one-trick pony. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, general like turning out generalist singers is what you have to do. And he wants that, but he doesn't outwardly actually come out in support of it. You know, he says, you could stick with the British tradition. You could stick with the American tradition. It's what's right for you. It's what it's what's right for your singers. It's, you know, it's all circumstantial. And I kind of despise that. Not going to lie. Well, and I found that he was kind of actually critical of kind of that position. Um, and, and by the way, we have nothing against Christopher Lowry, but this is, this is an interesting article that a lot of people have been debating. And there are some folks in the choral community that I personally am kind of like eye roll. Okay. Um, that, uh, that have really jumped on this bandwagon and they're like, yes, what this guy said. And I'm like, I, nobody's, nobody necessarily has pushed back on this. Yeah. And so I, mean, I, I, if I have to be the guy that pushes back on it a little bit, fine, that's fine. Um, a I mean, hundred years ago, you know, there was, um, Christiansen, Melius Christiansen, and he tried to shoebox choir into the same idea of band, you know, first chair tenor, first chair alto, and tried to make everyone else sound like that first chair based off of preferences off of an instrument that's not even constructed the same way in every person. Yeah. It, well, it's, it's, it's much more ephemeral than band and orchestra. We can't shoebox it like we can. No, and I those. and I totally feel that. But what what I was getting at is he says in his article, he says, "What's more, most young classical singers in the U.S. are trained for careers as soloists on the opera stage and concert platform. Up until recently, it was not possible to eke out a career exclusively in a professional choir singing, something that is quite common in the U.K. The American scene, with fewer professional choral opportunities, is therefore blended with the oratorio circuit, comprised of artists who are trained as generalists." singers, those who can have a go as an elite ensemble singer, but who really thrive on solo or step out work, expecting these singers to behave exactly like choral specialists is unrealistic and unfair. Likewise, expecting ideal choral aesthetics to change to fit within generalist techniques is equally unrealistic and fair. Um, I would really like to know what his opinion is on ideal choral aesthetics, because I, again, I like aspects of the British style of choral singing. Um, but I, I also am more appreciative of the generalist singing education that I received. Something that we talk about at Wildcat 91.9, the K-State student radio station, especially with sports, because it's interesting how you'll get somebody that says, I just want to do play by play. That's it. I just want to be a play by play person. It's like, dude, you're never going to get hired anywhere at any station ever if you just do play-by-play. -play. If that's it, if that's all that you can do, if you have no board op experience, if you can't do color, if you can't be a producer, if you can't do this, if you can't do that, if you can't do that, if you don't understand how your music programming works and you could step in if the music director is out, like you need to be able to do so much stuff. And we say at Wildcat 91.9, we don't train specialists. That's not what we do because being a specialist doesn't prepare you for the real world in your entry-level kind of gigs. 
right? And and I get this. This is this is he's talking about elite choral ensembles. Uh, uh, Christopher Lowry is, and that's fine. And I guess yeah, then maybe you can be a little bit more selective. But I, I think the generalist choral experience in America prepares people to be a little bit more well-rounded in their musical experience. Right. And I, and I felt like he was criticizing that from a, from a British perspective, which I didn't necessarily appreciate. Yeah. I would almost say that I question what he identifies as the British trademarking that makes their elite ensemble singers. You know, he uses that phrase elite, a lot. like he uses an adjective to describe whatever singers in whatever setting a lot. Um, you know, what's so special about British training versus the American training that turns out generalists that makes them so elite because if they have the same level of oral skills, if they have the same level of theory knowledge and applied knowledge, it doesn't matter. You know, maybe, maybe British singers are more used to that straightened out sound that they prefer across the Atlantic. But beyond that, what's the major difference? Yeah. I have not seen one. No, I'm not sure exactly what the, uh, the argument is for against generalist singers. I, I'm not, quite sure what the argument is for that because every every musician that we talked to i mean christopher tin was like don't just specialize right he was like go go experiment with other music go be in different ensembles go do things that make you uncomfortable right ben wade was like you're you're only going to find success if you're forged in the fires of failure right right and if you if you decide i'm going to sing exactly one type of choral music and that's british style of choral music all the time I mean, good luck. I'd, Hopefully you find one ensemble you can stay with and get your money. And you better move to the, to the UK. <laughs> like yeah. It's just it's not feasible around anywhere else in the world except for Britain, which I which I find interesting. Jesse, what are you thinking about all this? Yeah, my head's kind of swimming right now. So, you know, one thing is that my main issue I had with the article wasn't necessarily it was more so just the fact that, you know, like Ryan was saying, he didn't really take a stance on anything which I found kind of distressing because I felt like there was no solid conclusion out of this. It was just like kind of a whatever, you know, not going to take a stance, just, you know, you do you type of answer, which I'm not satisfied with where when it comes to like basically an article where you're expressing your opinion, I would like to hear your opinion. And if I disagree with it, that's fine. But I would still like to hear your opinion, not just you, you know, talk about, you know, the stuff that's on your plate and just feel like, Cool. That's the stuff, which is basically what he did, which I didn't like. <laughs> um, but, you know, at the same time, you know, I kind of come at this from a different angle, I think, because, you know, I'm a singer. Yes, but I would not say that I had more of the, you know, I wasn't brought up in the same way as a singer. You know, one of the things he did talk about, and this is something I really do agree with. He was talking about how one thing for one singer might be uncomfortable for them, but it might be another singer's bread and butter. And that's something that I've particularly, uh, you know, come into qualms with over the years because, you know, the whole, you know, the whole kind of notion that, yeah, as your voice matures, then, you know, you unlock your vibrato and stuff like that. That never really happened with me. Like I've always been somebody who's been very comfortable singing straight. Like I, I've done it for years. And I think the whole notion that, you know, just the, the, you know, one size fits all straight singing is bad for you. I don't think that's true at all. I've been singing straight all my life and I've never had any issues coming out of that. So I don't think that's true at all. Um, It's just that I think it's a lot of singers who, you know, singing with a vibrato is really natural and it comes easy to them. 
straight singing is really not something that comes easy to them. And so, you know, as humans, when we do things we're uncomfortable with, we kind of tense up and it makes us really uncomfortable. And I think it's those types of people who are saying these things. But, you know, the people like me who are really used to singing straight tone, we're kind of just left thinking, what about us? You know, <laughs> so. Um, but so that was one thing that he said that I, I really agree with um, that, you know, singers are different. But um, one thing I have noticed with kind of the uh, American choral tradition or whatever, I don't even know if that's the right word, but, um, you know, I do find that a lot of times, and this is just in my experience, but I find that a lot of American choirs, everybody sings like they're a soloist. And it is something that kind of drives me up a wall because just all the time, I just want to be like, guys, please. You're, this is not a solo piece like you gotta blend you gotta listen it's just you know things like that pop up all the time in my experience and you know there was I, i've only sang with like two choirs in all my years of choral singing that really nailed down the whole idea of blending and listening around you every other choir it's just everyone's singing like they're a soloist and it drives me crazy. Um, <laughs> and I do think that an idea of kind of having a more kind of like chamber music oriented type of approach to choral singing is something that can really help because, you know, I just find that a lot of times choral singers don't do that broadly speaking. Um, and chamber so music in what way? Like d define define the the chamber music experience that is most optimal in your mind. So, like you know, with chamber music, you know, it's a requirement that you have to be very aware of your surroundings, and it's a requirement that you have to really blend with everybody around you. If you don't, it's going to sound like crap because it's it's you know it's a chamber group. It's a small amount of players. You know, you don't have anybody to cover you up basically you can't hide. that's why a yeah. lot of times we get encouraged as composers to write chamber music because you can't hide your mistakes because when you have a big ensemble there's so much stuff going on you can hide you your can mistakes hide the in chamber music uh, uh so um that's why you know as composers we're egged on to write chamber music which i find awesome but um at the same time it's also a kind of mentality i think that can go with you know not just choral singing but i think especially choral singing because i that's the medium that i find it's thought about the least um and so just having that you know mentality of listening around you and really blending being aware of everything that's going around you just like i think that having that kind of mentality instilled in choral singers i think is something that would really help because i don't think it is that much and everyone just sings like a soloist and then it turns into you know it sounds like just a choir of old people and every time i hear one of the, no you know what i'm talking about and every time i hear that i, I just want to leave because i'm just like it's a this, Wagnerian opera chorus yes and i'm just like i hate this it's so bad as people and, of our generation will know wobble baby wobble baby, wobble baby. <laughs> that's all it sounds like <laughs> dude i can't stand excruciatingly wide vibrato in a choral setting i, I it, I can't stand it. It's so bad. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, there's more stuff I'm thinking about, but I've been talking too long. So no, it's okay. Go, no, go, go ahead. Well, so <laughs> you've given us a lot of stuff to yeah. ruminate on. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm sad that your choral experience has been that because mine wasn't like that. Um, and I, and I, I feel confident in saying that 
my choral education was really top notch, sang with some of the best kind of early choral uh, uh, early developmental choral educators. You know, I got, you got people like Janiel Crable, Carolyn Welch. Um, then you got over at Allegro Choirs of Kansas City. That was with the Lawrence Children's Choir and the Allegro Choirs of Kansas City. You had Jake Navarro, right. Christy Elsner, Christopher Smith, all these people that are really making splashes or have already made a splash in the choral world. Um, and they, they really have good background on everything that they're doing. But I will say, I didn't really... I thought I knew things coming into college about choral music and it prepared me to be at Kansas state. K-State choirs was another level and the expectation of musicianship, the expectation of listening, the expectation of everything that Jesse just complained that wasn't existent in most of the choral experience that he had was in that choral experience for me. And I know it was for Ryan too, because we say save choirs. Um, and And it's interesting because I, I, it's such an American thing, and we talk about this in my mass communication classes um, when we when we talk about collectivism versus individualism, and how America is so focused on individualistic ideals. Uh, it's kind of like you do what you want to do, right? But if you go over to Africa, it's like I'm going to go talk to the main the the patriarch of my family, and he will decide what I do, even though I'm four generations removed from he is, right? And it's because of an honor thing, it's a respect kind of thing. There's a collectivist culture. Everybody. Lives lives in the same place. Everybody does the same stuff in America. That's like totally frowned yeah. upon, which is unique. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily good. I kind of advocate for a mix of both. Um, but again, all things in moderation. And I think what Jesse is describing here is that as is kind of the stereotypical American experience, it goes to one extreme or the other and there's nothing in between, right? It's like, we're going to be 1000% straight tone. We're going to destroy our sopranos in the process and we're going to sing in exactly one type of way and that's it. Regardless of what the music calls for, the style, we're going to do it all just this one way. Or we're going to sound like either a community choir of old folks and nothing against community choirs of old folks. I love that old folks have community choirs, right? Community choirs. We need more community choirs in the United States. But or an opera chorus or or, or, an, or, or it turns into like a Wagnerian opera chorus, right? Where you get this really wide vibrato. Everybody's singing like a soloist. And it's kind of like mm, that. That's that's not necessarily uh, choral singing, quote unquote. And I and I guess what drives home for me, what Jesse was saying. And again, this is where I kind of take issue with what Christopher Lowry was saying in his article. Granted, he's writing he's he's writing for a specific audience, right? He's writing for choral musicians, right? And if you handed this to an English person and was like, "Hey, Doctor Smith, I want you to read this as an English professor at you know Berkeley," he'd be like. Well, this doesn't mean anything to me, right? But for choral singers, it means something. So there's an inherent implied knowledge that you have to have coming into reading this article. But there's no specific definition of what is kind of like the apex choral tradition, right? Um, people from Britain say, well, it's the British one, obviously, because it's really old and they've been doing it that way for a really long time. Cool. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that. But what else is there? And that's where I, as an American, say I want to combine some of that, which I also think is hilariously American, even though we do live in such an individualist society. But uh, it's, we really stick by that melting pot philosophy in a lot of things we do. Yeah. Yeah. And so in my experience, it's been I want you I was always encouraged to sing with the resonance of a solo feeling right you you want to sing in a soloistic way but you can't sacrifice blending you can't sacrifice the homogenization of vowels you can't sacrifice um 
the vibrato sticking out. If all the sopranos are straight tone and then the other soprano isn't, I mean, then the one person that sticks out is the soprano that isn't, right? Um, and so there's nobody was ever advocating for that, which is kind of where I feel like this article is saying we're 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 shaming the people that advocate for that. I don't know people that do advocate for that, and if they do, they probably either come from a a, a long begone uh, bygone age of choral singing and or they aren't very good at what they do and I said what I said but uh, and that might trigger some people but I, I that's that's where I come from with this and go ahead Ryan yeah I've got a, this got, this reminded me of a couple things so first this brings me to a point that um, for at least the American choral tradition might get a little controversial because I'm gonna bring up what is endearingly termed the three-headed Lutheran dog <laughs> so for listeners who have not delved into the choral world this Three-Headed Lutheran Dog is three Lutheran colleges that have monumental choral programs in American history. Yep. They are Luther College, Concordia College, and St. And Olaf. Olaf's College. And they're in Minnesota and Iowa. Yep. Um, you know, Luther being in Iowa, the other two being in Minnesota. And Meli- um, Melius Christianensen that I mentioned earlier with his whole idea of chairing singers, he comes from that tradition. They have this idea of trying to separate themselves from the British choral tradition, but not in a way that's actually meaningful. And it makes me think um, how much of the music that we sing today is actually authentically performed, which is a whole other topic that we can get into another time. But, you know, take, for example, um, the many motets that Francis Poulenc wrote, or perhaps any psalm that Felix Mendelssohn set to music. How often do we hear it performed by Trinity, Trinity College, Cambridge, straight tone and in all reality, it probably wasn't performed like that. We don't have enough of a resource to say Mendelssohn wanted it with vibrato or Poulenc wanted this straight tone and quiet. You know, maybe they have dynamics in their music. I would expect so in the, in the Romantic era, especially. But no one's going to actually write in the music as a composer. Perhaps nowadays they might. You two can attest to that. But no one's going to write, I want this straightened out the whole time. It's a matter it of would. preference when it comes to music like that. Yeah, there's more of a movement, I would say, in the 21st century compositional style. I've I've written sans vibrato in my music before, but it, but but it, but and I love that you said that because the the way that Dr. Oppenheim at Kansas State and Dr. U, but Dr. Oppenheim really specifically crafted this really incredibly homogenous sound, um, and he he used vibrato as a color. He used it as an affect. Right? It was it was I I we're going to sing this one parts of this piece with vibrato because we're trying to accent something. We're trying to highlight maybe something that the text is doing. Maybe we're trying to highlight something that the music is doing. It wasn't sans vibrato just for the sake of sans vibrato, right? It was, okay, we need this chord to be really in tune and I want to hear the nine and the 11 extensions, but you can't hear them very well because they're covered up by vibrato. So we're going to straight tone that, right? So there was, there was more of a philosophy of, uh, a, a tool, right? Yeah, it's just being a judicial. It's a it's a tool in your toolbox, and that's that's how he viewed it. That's how I personally view it. Um, and Lines up really well with the vocal training we got from our professor, Dr. Brian Pinkle. Right, and that's and I I think that that's a far more sufficient way to go about that. That's my personal opinion. And Jesse, I saw your hand up, so uh, let's hear what you have to say on it. Yeah, this is the kind of uh, you know, as you listen to us talk about this, you know, you can hear that there's so many factors when it comes uh, to this kind of thing. And in a lot of situations, you can't be sure of what the composer might have intended. 
So what you need to do, and this is why this is what I advocate for. You need to use the music and you need to use the text to guide you in your aesthetic decisions. Every, you know, method and every little technique is fair game, but you need to use it having that aesthetic in mind, something that amplifies the music, not just doing one thing just because, you know, there needs to be like a reason why you're doing this straight tone. There needs to be a reason why you're using vibrato. And, you know, the whole vibrato thing, you know, I love what you said about, you know, uh, about uh, Dr. Oppenheim saying that vibrato is used as an affect because I think that's something that we've lost in modern music. I think, you know, and we were talking about this with David Wood, you know, back in early music times, vibrato was purely an affect, you know, and, and people have kind of misconstrued, you know, saying that they didn't use vibrato. It's like, no, they did, but it was an affect. It was not a default by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, if you look at a lot of scores from like the Baroque period, there were some composers who would write in where you wanted, where they wanted vibrato to happen. I saw a score once where the composer put X's below the notes that he wanted vibrate. It was a piece for lute. And he would put X's below the notes that he wanted the player to vibrate. Everything else should have been sans vibrato. So, and I think that's something that we've lost because vibrato, you know, in, in today's day and age, you know, and it's not, ju not just with vocalists, but in instrument instrumentalists as well, vibrato has become a default. And that's really something I don't like because I think vibrato is more of an affect and an embellishment. And I think it's something that can, that should be used more sparingly and something that should be used to like accentuate a certain moment in the music and not something that's used on default, because if you use it on default, it becomes not special anymore. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm really just a person of the mindset that you really just need to do, you know, what the music is calling for based on the music, because the music will tell you a lot. You just need to look for it. And also what the text is telling you, you know, what kind of techniques can you use? What kind of effects you can use to effectively text paint essentially. And I think these are the finer details that I think in choral singing can be missed a lot of times. There are some great directors that really are attuned to these things and, you know, and their choirs sound absolutely amazing because of it. But I think that far too often that doesn't happen and it's too much of a kind of one size fits all thing going on here. And they really don't get into the weeds of the music, you know, and thinking about what kind of effects can be used at certain times, you know, to really bring this out. I think that's something that's a bit overlooked a lot of times, which I'm not a fan of. Sure. Well, okay. So, so I, mm, let me, let me pose it to you first in this way, because Ryan is probably out of the three of us. Well, not probably he is, um, the, the pedagogue in terms of like vocal health and, um, how the how the instrument of the voice works there's a and there's a great emphasis that christopher lowry and i think it's a really excellent point i think it's one of the the points that i identify with the most out of this entire article is the the actual vocal health that is taken into account and consideration when you're asking soprani to scream all of the time at these like sans vibrato just unrealistic locations right where it would be much easier much safer per se on your voice to be able to do that but then jesse also brought up a really great point that some people aren't built 
to be that way. Like Jesse as a bass is not built in his voice to sing with a lot of vibrato. I'm built to sing with a lot of vibrato. I, I, I personally am proud of my instrument and that I can do both. And I think I can do both pretty dang well. Uh, I know Ryan needs vibrato. He can also straight tone it really well as well, but I much prefer vibrato. Yeah. I much prefer vibrato too. Like there's, there's only like, it's less than an octave in which I would prefer to not do vibrato. It's like, okay, from, you know, C, C three to C four. Cool. I can do that. Like that's, that's chill. But if you want me to sing a G, you know, you want me to sing G four, Sans vibrato, I'm like, huh, here's my middle finger, and I'm not going to do that. That's because, even, that's mean for tenors. Well, yeah, and it's and but that's that's the expectation, yeah, right? And that's the expectation, and that's kind of where I think UK, the the United Kingdom and the British choral style gets such a black eye because that's what they demand of their singers, regardless yes. of their vocal health. So take it away. Okay, so I will put on the musicologist hat after we take a short <laughs> break after we break this down. But as far as vocal health goes, Christopher Lowry does have the right of it. Like he recognizes that. Straight tone is unnecessarily difficult on sopranos, and that's why they specifically choose younger voices, because they're trying to catch them before damage has been done. That does not say that they're not doing damage. They are doing damage. You know, something that reminds me all the way back to high school when my director introduced um, our concert choir to Renaissance music. He brought up the great point that is not discussed in modern choral music, that the dynamic palette when you're straight toning is much smaller. That needs to be explicitly stated because think about it on a scale of one to 10 on the way that you turn up a guitar. Like if you turn up an amp on 10, you're going to blow your ears out. 10 is not possible. If you're straight toning, that is not possible. And if you attempt it, you're going to really hurt yourself. You're going to hurt yourself. Yeah. You might hurt other people, especially with your tone, because then you're just going to sound like a cat yelling. <laughs> but you know, in reality, I like the way that my high school teacher, Darren Chapin put it. Um, when you're singing straight tone, the, the, the dynamic palette goes from being one to 10 to being more like three to six. That's all you got. And it's unrealistic nowadays, I would say, and especially in the British choral tradition that asks you to sing things like Britain and Owain Park and Alexander Lestrange and Francis Poulenc and plenty of other pieces that way. You know, if Mendelssohn wrote Fortissimo or oh, here's a good point. If Giuseppe Verdi wrote Fortissimo, he means you better blow the roof off the house. <laughs> you better blow the roof off the house. Yeah. Which means you better not be straight toning. Yeah. Because if you are, you're going to bleed. Yeah. You might bleed. Well, it's in its context, right? Yeah. And it's the, it's the context that, it, like Jesse said, it's the context that's informed by the musical decisions that you make. Yeah. So I feel like I'm someone who knows how to, you know, since I'm somebody, you know, my voice is more built straight. I'm someone who, cause you know, the vocal health thing definitely is a factor, but like there's a way to harm yourself in every type of singing. Oh, for sure. You know, like, yeah, because you know, with me, you know, like what I've noticed is that, you know, cause I can sing with vibrato, of course, like that's something that I've learned and that's something I was trained to do. However, since that's less natural to me, I'm more likely to hurt myself using vibrato than I am singing straight because as a person who sang straight my whole life, I know how to keep myself safe, you know, because like what you said is totally right. Singing way loud, straight toned. It's just not like doable. that. Ma- it's that not makes my throat hurt. Just thinking about it. Like yeah. I know how much that bad. And you're totally right about, you know, the dynamic constraints. Um, but the thing that's interesting about straight tone is that when you sing straighter and when it's the sound is unperturbed, the thing shoots 
Oh yeah, like, it, it is shoots more way out. It yeah. takes much less effort to make a fortissimo sound, you know, uh, in a choral setting. Because I mean, like the only time you're going to be expected to do straight tone loud is really in a choral setting. If you're doing soloistic straight tone singing, it's nothing that's going to require you to sing loud. No. Because like what you're chanting or something. Yeah. Or you don't have to sing loud for that. It's something related to speech (laughs) normally. Yeah. Unless the composer is just a dick. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Which Which, it might be. (laughs) You know, I will say it. Brian Pinkle is the biggest advocate. At least he was in my teaching. I don't know how he did this with you, but he said, if the composer's stupid in their writing, ignore them. Ignore, no, I and totally, he, as a composer, yeah, totally agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, if the composer is stupid, ignore yeah. it. There are times like if the Giuseppe composer Verdi, does not know what they're talking about. Clearly, don't do what they wrote. Yeah, yeah. and it's funny to me. I, I'm that, totally for that. It's funny to me that so many composers that we study in music history, of course, are the ones that are getting ignored. Like you know, think about Verdi, who wrote. Um, I'll take Falstaff for example. The tenor role in Falstaff is, it's not even leggero tenor. It's not even that light. It's lyric tenor. And he asks for A flats, G sharps, G's, F's, quiet, like pianissimo and mm-hmm. slow. Well, and that, that, and that, that, re- that requires a very specific technique. It does. Yeah. But yeah. also to get that over a stage and an orchestra. Yeah. Forget about it. Forget about it. <laughs> forget about yeah, it. Pianissimo <laughs> is relative. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. Now, and it's mm-hmm. interesting because I, there's a disconnect between recordings that I hear and what actually needs to be done. Like one of my favorite recordings of Mein Zane and Mein Venen from uh, oh. from Die Tote Stadt uh, by Korngold. It's uh, uh, Thomas Hampson is my favorite recording. I'm not a big Thomas Hampson person in general, but his recording is just fire. Um, and the last the last note is like, uh, it's, so it's like an quiet. F and he just like barely sings it. I'm like, there's no way anybody yeah. is hearing that anywhere at any time no. in a concert hall, maybe ever. No. <laughs> and, like, and maybe in a small recital hall. Yeah, maybe. And, and guys like yeah. him, guys like him have perpetuated in a in an almost bad way that now people that hear that recording they're like oh well if he can do it then i can expect my student to do it no yeah. like that's, that's stupid like i would never ask yeah. a student to do that or yeah. i would never ask a professional to do that this doesn't make any sense yeah there, there's like, no there's no reason to be doing that i'm a tenor and i can't even do that in that aria so talk to us from a, a, a musicologist standpoint let's let's hear your musicology perspective and your your evil james bond fingers yes yeah so here's some gold finger for you um <laughs> When it comes to musicology, the thing that we don't talk about, you know, it's it only recently became a movement in the 90s. You know, um, if you ask David Wood, because he is one of the most knowledgeable people on this, there was a short time between the 40s and the 60s, especially on the latter half of that period where early music performance became a thing in America. You know, that's when people started realizing, oh, we could perform Renaissance music. We could perform Baroque music and do it the way that it was intended. And then it kind of died out because minimalism resurfaced and you know gave birth to philip glass i'm I'm gonna be honest i don't like his music i don't there's uh i have to be in a very very specific mood to be like let's go listen to philip glass yeah uh beautiful productions to watch mm, not to listen to yeah the achnaten yeah um is the the opera that the met did that was philip glass right yes that's yeah yeah, i was like that that um Incredible. I loved that opera, but it was definitely more because of the like the, visual, the visual aesthetic yeah. that helped offset the fact that you were hearing the same thing a thousand different 
times. Oh yeah, just interposed over each other. Yeah. He's very Terry Riley in that aspect, yeah. which I actually think he studied with Terry Riley. Well, then that would make sense. It would make a lot of sense. The the pear doesn't fall far from that shrub. I don't know. Um, tree. Whatever. Prayers, prayers grow on trees. I don't care. Anyways, I was just I'm just being dumb. Back to musicology. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know that has been a conversation in early music. It has not been a conversation in anything classical era and on. You know, we don't really talk about like, how did Schubert want this performed or how did Donizetti want this performed or how did most importantly, the German choral composers, Brahms, Mendelssohn and others want their music performed. We just assume that because Belcanto was popularized in solo singing and because vibrato was becoming more apparent in string playing, that it's what they wanted. We don't take the time to ask the musicologist who actually knows what was intended here? What was the default? Because if we know what the default is, then we can actually train musicians to know that. And personally, I think that's a disservice to many music students where music history falls short for them. It doesn't teach them the applicable skills for applied music. And I think that's something that we still see in the American collegiate music education, that there are some schools that, like you, um, like we've talked about in our episodes on pursuing an arts degree, there are some schools that focus on paper music and some schools that focus on music off the paper. Yeah. There is a huge disconnect in those two realms still. Well, and I'm, I'm so glad that you said that because, um, it's, it is a disservice of the generalization of education that you receive in America that it's like, um, you know, it's ground into your forehead what the the living and death dates were of Mozart and Bach. But you 1750. Could, you know, <laughs> um, but uh, you couldn't you can't a choral singer usually uh, with just a bachelor's degree in of music of some kind in that way can't explain to you. Uh, wh- why you should or should not use vibrato? What does the musicological experience uh, knowledge dictate for you to do that? They're like, well, I don't know. And it's like, well, I feel like that's probably more important than remembering when Mozart was or was not alive. Yeah. Okay, so like, granted, that's important information, but why? Well, there, there's some applicability that needs to occur here that music history just falls flat on these days. Uh, and it's, it's sad because music history is really interesting and the, the application of music history is so important, but so many music students just kind of like sleep their way through music history because it, it, there's no application or they feel that there's no application because you have to go searching for the musicologist that's able to explain the application correctly to you, which is few and far between at this point. Yeah. At this point, it's almost reserved for graduate study because no music history professor is going to take the time of day unless you seek them out specifically for one scenario. They're not going to tell you. Yeah. They're not going to say, this is the style of the classical era. This is the style of the 1850s because they don't think you take it. Yeah. They don't think you actually take it and apply it. When in reality, that would be so much more applicable than saying, oh, Ravel wrote this, 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 this. He wrote this because someone left, lost his right hand in the war, blah, 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 blah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Jesse, what were you going to say? I recently took a Renaissance music course at USC. I didn't finish it, but because uh, that was the, you know, right before I dropped out, sure. but, um, I took it for a brief moment. It's a graduate level class, most substantive, intriguing music history class I've ever taken. And it really did make me discover how much undergraduate music history falls way flat because a lot of undergraduate music history is regurgitating information, especially dates that have no application at all. It's just like, okay, yeah, I know when this guy lived and died, 
That's really useful, but I don't know anything about performing his music, which is something that I would like to know. <laughs> exactly. Um, I do think it's gradually getting better because I do think people are starting to take notice of that. However, it's still bad. Like <laughs> there's still work that needs to be done. Because I can't wait to write a thesis on this. <laughs> because yeah, it, it's 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 really disappointing how the only substantive music history you can get is at the graduate level. That's really disappointing. And I mean, it's not really. Why wouldn't you? Why would you not make that accessible to undergraduates? I don't understand that. Like, isn't the whole point of training them to be good musicians? Well, part of being a good musician is like looking at a piece and seeing who it was written by to know the time period and knowing the applicable information about that time period and what this composer was living in at this time to inform you on how to perform this music. It's like, why would you make that reserved for only graduates? That makes zero sense to me. So yeah, I'm totally with you on the point that undergraduate music history it falls flat on its face in that regard. And I, I, we really need to see more change on that horizon because it's it's kind of embarrassing. Yeah, it reminds me of a time that I was judged at a competition. Actually, I was at National Nats this past summer and I had a judge tell me that I wasn't <clears throat> singing my French music in a French style. And I thought, what are you generalizing French style to be? You know, that's a very broad term, even for someone who studied music history and actually someone like myself who actually went, I'm not going to say above and beyond, but I'm going to say above and beyond and does independent study on these things because I like it and I want to teach it. It's a strange statement to say, oh, you don't perform this in the way that Donizetti intended. You don't perform this in the way that the French intended. You don't perform this with respect to the style of the 1850s because undergrads aren't taught that. So, yeah, I totally affirm what this conversation Mm -hmm. is leading to because it doesn't, you know, we are not taught what to actually apply for music history. It is just regurgitation. So that's kind of like my musicological soapbox on this. Like, you know, how do we apply the choral tradition of things other than what has been composed in the last, I'll say 50 to 70 years other than what we get generalized into, you know, I have never been taught Mendelssohn in a setting other than Kansas, Kansas state university's concert choir, where I have been told to straight down. Yeah. Every other place I have sung Mendelssohn, I have been told, sing it like bel canto. They may not use the bel canto language, but they want vibrato in the way that bel canto was when it was popularized. Yeah, and I just and that's where I'm going to just shamelessly plug Kansas State because our our choral faculty are so smart in that way and how they they approach that style of education and how you are equipped to be a versatile and extremely skilled choral singer when you leave the program because of the way that they teach a, a, a multifaceted style of singing um, and a multifaceted style of choral singing, which I kind of got the impression, and I could be wrong about this, but I, from what I was reading from Christopher Lowry, that's I kind of got the impression that he was kind of like saying, don't, don't necessarily do that, right? Because it, what it all comes down to is, should we be singing with vibrato all the time or should we not be singing with vibrato all the time? And it has sparked this like argument between two different choral traditions where I'm like, the, the answer is neither <laughs> like, yeah. like the, that's the simple answer is neither. So hilariously, we will stand in the middle of the road. We criticize Christopher for Christopher Lowry for standing in the middle of the road on this one, but like the answer is the middle of the road. Right. And that's, that's kind of like the, the logical fallacy of all of this that you sit back and you say, well, 
you we we're advocating for we want a specific answer but the specific answer is do both <laughs> yeah um you know so I'm, I'm sitting here looking at the article on your other monitor colby and it ends with as anyone who loves and studies this art form will tell you it's rarely that simple yeah and that's because it, no shame on christopher lowry he stirred the pot here's the thing the three of us are actually stating opinions on the matter and taking stances he did not he was just kind of like he would it was almost like i was just telling how much he was trying to avoid taking a stance in reading the article which is part of what frustrated me so much about it. i'm thinking in my head i was like dude take a stance please like let me know what your opinion is okay like this is your article after all just give it to us please yeah like Again, if I disagree with you, it's fine. Just give me your opinion on it so I can have something to take away from this. Because like after reading that, I'm just like, I didn't really take away much. If anything, I did. What was the takeaway here? You know, if anything, for me, sorry to interrupt you. um, It affirmed for me that experience in the field does not always justify correctness. You know, it gives you an opinion. It is, um, in this case, not the right one. Yeah, I, I, I will not say that it's the wrong one, but it's, 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 it's <laughs> like, because, you know, we're, we're, we're on the grayscale here. You just, you just did what Jesse was criticizing I did. Christopher Lowry I did. of doing. I did. You dirty hypocrite. I did. And I am. But because here's the thing. We're projecting. We're, maybe, maybe a bit. Yeah. I mean, music, of course, as we know, it's subjective. You know, what I think is good tone, Colby may think is trash. Um, it is. I'm kidding. I don't know that. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. Cause I still win competitions, <laughs> but you know, I look at Christopher Lowry's article and I just think, you know, his knowledge in the field is based off of experience. You know, I don't know what his academic background is and nor am I going to shame someone or assume that their opinion is incorrect if it lacks academic backing. But I look at this and it's all based on circumstance. It's based on, Oh, I worked in this ensemble or I worked in this opera company. It's not, I have looked at singers across the fields and noticed this it's my work experience not my observational experience because if as anyone in science or any research will tell you you have to remove yourself from the scenario you can't pick and choose your experiences and say oh this is what i know because it's confirmation bias you know he has Mm -hmm. he has allowed himself to circumnavigate actually picking a side while using his experience from both sides because it lets him do that if he actually removed himself from it and studied something else, it actually may force him to pick one. Well, and I, I, I love though the way that he ties this article all together in the little bow that he puts on it at the end. And it says, whatever you're, you're into, oh, sorry, uh, whatever you're into this fast, what? Whatever your way. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to delete that part. What, <laughs> <laughs> whatever your way into this fascinating and centuries old tradition, relying on simplistic stereotypes or thread worn narratives stifles learning and stifles artistic potential. Yes. I agree with that. Experience has taught me That's that true. the best advice of us of the best advice to aspiring musicians is to get curious and stay curious. Very true. I also agree with that. Why does that particular 
Why does that particular sound work? Listen, 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 never stop listening. Face hard truths. Experiment. Yes, yes, yes. I agree with all of that. So there are many different approaches to making choral music. Facts. In some ways, more today than ever. Absolute facts. There's no need to sacrifice one at the altar of another through more sustained conversation. And by saying the quiet bits out loud, we might come to a place of better understanding and acceptance about the complexities and challenges unique to choral singing, all without resorting to quick fixes or scapegoats. Um, Which I, I... that's I have absolutely no qualms with that because I no. think that that's I think that that's a really realistic way to kind of wrap up this conversation for us and for this particular article, um, because I, I agree with both Jesse and Ryan in that it seems like he was kind of like, well, I don't necessarily want to pick on this side entirely and I don't want to pick on this side entirely as well. So I'm just going to stand here in the middle. But the answer is, is that the 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 way that you get around this is by standing in the middle. So yeah, ultimately it's, it's I th- picking I, what side you want to lean on at what time. Yeah. I, I, I think to Jesse's credit and what he was talking about where he said, I felt like he had an opinion and then he just didn't tell you what his opinion necessarily was. Right. Um, I can agree with that. I think it would have been a little bit more well-received if perhaps he had said, you know, at the end of the day, I think that you should do both or I think that you should do whatever, right? It, ne- neither of them are right or wrong. They're not mutually exclusive, right? It's not you have to do it one way or you have to do it another way because there are arguments against both that are both equally valid and legitimate. Yeah. Um, so combine them. And that's where I, I always just kind of default to what Dr. Oppenheim always says and using it, using vibrato as an affect. How are you coloring the choir? Um, one of the first piece of compositional advice I was ever given Jake Navarud, who's a choir director. I've sung in his pro choir before. He's a great guy came out and he's, and he told me I did this one thing and he said, why did you do that? And I said, uh, I full disclosure. I have no idea. And he said, cool, that's okay. In the future, have a reason for why you did that. If you did that because it was like, Oh, because I wanted to highlight this thing, or maybe I wanted to express this particular opinion, or maybe I wanted this or this, this, or this. He said, that's fine. Have a reason for everything that you do. I was like, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense at this point. I think because there are, um, I think he described them as old dinosaurs at the beginning of this, uh, <laughs> of this article on both sides of the aisle, right. Of, uh, one, one's going to shake their stick at you and say, you must sing with vibrato all the time. And we're going to sound like Robert Shaw's ensemble from the from the 70s and the nope. 60s or we're going to do like exclusively no vibrato and it's going to have almost like no contour there's going to be no interest to it you're going to need little boys to inhale helium <laughs> Uh, I'll have the meme with the dude that just hits that, like, uh, he holds it like a joint and just hits that balloon. Yep. The Allegri Miserere May. (laughs) I actually had somebody recently ask me, they were like, is that possible? And I was like, man, I wish it was. Actually, Um, it is. I mean, it doesn't raise it 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 by an octave. It doesn't raise it by an octave. It is so. It's That's extremely so unhealthy. Finicky. Yeah, it doesn't because he because helium is a lighter gas than air. So we don't have we don't know how to control helium. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's so finicky. Yeah. Now maybe a choir on Venus could do that. Uh, well then we'll send, we'll send an ensemble to Venus. Uh, Elon Musk. I require a, an, an ensemble on Venus for science. Only if I get um, a Tesla. <laughs> What do you have? We don't have anything to do with it. We're just requesting him to send a choir to Venus. Oh, I know, but um, we, we gave only him if a, I get a cyber truck. We gave him airtime, so I want a Tesla. <laughs> you but want a Tesla. I do. I really don't. I would sell it, but You know, I want to bring up something you said as we wrap up, you know, you read that last paragraph of his article. And I would say that if you isolated that, 
It almost sounds almost because he doesn't really pick a side, but that last little ribbon that he ties, it almost is like he leans in the direction of generalism. You know, he's like, do everything, train as much as you can keep experimenting. But if you only experiment on one side of the aisle, you're never going to get anything done. So you have to do it all. You have to be a generalist. I'm not going to say that's what he claimed because he didn't. But as anyone who studies English, let's go get your wife. She can help us with this. <laughs> His rhetoric yeah. points in the direction of be a generalist. Yeah. Yeah. The, the That last paragraph was the absolute closest he got to formulating an opinion. He was so close, but he just didn't put it there like he never did that you know he broke a fundamental rule of writing where's his like thesis statement i think this that never happened but um um but what he said in that last paragraph though you know credit where credit's due he's spot on you know at the end of the day and i think this speaks to a big issue in a more seasoned musicians i feel like as musicians you know get further and further along they stop listening and they kind of close off their minds and they don't try new things and they effectively stop learning, which uh, I think is a real tragedy. Um, so, yes, I think it's I think it's essential at the end of the day, you know, to always leave your mind open, especially in music. Leave your mind open to new possibilities all the time and keep your mind open as much as you can. It's painful sometimes, I know, but just listen, okay? Put all your predispositions aside, as painful as that might be, no matter how much you instinctively want to say something about it, and just listen. And and if you keep your mind open and just leave yourself open to all the possibilities, you'll never stop learning. And you'll get some takeaways from that that you would have never thought of otherwise. So I think the big takeaway from all this is to just, you know, do all the things and never stop learning. Mrs. Because Frizzle. especially in the in music is especially a field where you do not stop learning. You, there's always something new to learn. There's always someone better than you. There's always something to learn. Music is a field where you that you never master. There's always something new to learn. Yeah. Well, in general, I liked this article. I liked what it had to say. I thought it pointed out some deficiencies on both sides of the aisle that were necessary to be pointed out because it's such a it's such a dogmatic argument, right? It's like religion. It's like sitting down with like a fundamentalist Christian and a Catholic, you know, and it's like we're going to duke it out over what the Bible says, you know, and it's I, it's kind of like there, we can we can learn things from both folks here. Okay. Um, and so I, and I appreciate that perspective. I would have really loved this article to be written by someone from the British choral tradition and from the American choral tradition. Um, <laughs> and it's, and it's like a conversation, right? It's not a, it's not a, we're going to punch you in the face with it. It's a, it's a, it's an open letter. It's an opinion piece. It's a conversation. Maybe that's um, a part two of this. Uh, I mean, maybe we get some people lined up. Well, and you know, we talked about this with Christopher 10. If you, if you want to know something about a different, um, style of music, Go, go find the person. Eliminate the middleman. Don't read about it. Go talk to somebody who's entrenched in that tradition. Like 
I, let's pick up the phone and call, um, you know, uh, Peter Phillips with the, the Talus Scholars and see what he has to say. Right. And let's go pick up the phone and then call Mac Wilberg, uh, who conducted the Mormon Tabernacle. And let's see what he has to say, you know, and let, let's let's find out what the greater consensus is here. Not that choral musicians haven't been doing that because I think they've been trying to, but have been unsuccessful. There's been a failure to communicate. Right. Um, and so I, I think that there's there's a conversation. There's an ongoing conversation that needs to be had there. But uh, I love what he had to say in general. And Christopher Lowry is definitely a, a seasoned musician. He's a dedicated musician. He knows what he's doing. So congrats to Peter, uh, to Peter, to Christopher Lowry, because it's a good article. But um, I, I, I agree that there's kind of I wish that there was a more definitive stance that was taken or at least saying there's no right answer. And my opinion, my personal opinion is to do blank um, instead of just kind of leaving the book open. But maybe yeah. maybe that's maybe that's where it was supposed to be left. Maybe it's food for thought yeah food and for thought yeah no I, I i dig that a lot okay well we have uh run out of time jesse i saw i saw your little finger do you do you have one parting comment because yeah, we're just out. just one quick thing i want to mention that all of our personal experiences that we've mentioned on this show are just that they are purely anecdotal this is an we opinion are not piece. taking jabs at anybody we are not calling anybody out Everything that we have said coming from our personal experience is just we've experienced what we've experienced. And we understand that we can't speak for other people's experiences and we're not trying to. Yeah. Precisely. So don't come at us if you have a problem. For us <laughs> but if you want to get mean, my DMs are open. <laughs> uh, you, you can go get Ryan as far as I'm concerned. His, his DMs are always open. Um, uh, absolutely not. No. You can come get mean because I can be meaner. Uh, don't do that. I, I don't I don't want to spark a controversy here. But uh, good point. Yeah, but, no, we're not aiming for I don't know who's a controversial podcaster. I don't know. Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan's probably the most controversial podcaster I know. Yeah, I was about to say Joe Rogan. Yeah, yeah we're not popular. aiming for that. Yeah. So um, but at any rate, no, I totally identify with what Jesse said, because this is this is an opinion piece, right? This is an opinion based podcast. Um, we we have our expertise in different areas, but uh, and sure, we yeah. did kind of criticize Christopher Lowry in his article. But but, but like him, we're, we're relying on our own experiences yeah. to form our opinions. Yeah, exactly. Which is a which is a frustrating place to be uh, as you want to conduct research, right? Because it's kind of like, well, that's anecdotal evidence. I need something a little bit more solid than that. And statistics can't prove anything at the moment relating to should you or should you not be singing uh, with or without from that. There yeah. are three types of lies, yeah. lies, damned lies and statistics. <laughs> <laughs> oh man well at any rate appreciate you guys tuning in go check us out at muse inc pod m-u-s-i-n-c-p-o-d on instagram twitter and on facebook you can go follow us like us subscribe to us whatever the heck you want to do appreciate you tuning in to the podcast uh i want to put it out there because i think it'd be interesting if you want to join a group chat and you want to just be a part of the musically inclined kind of community and you want to engage with myself or jesse or ryan on a personal level then uh come join our, our little instagram group chat that we started today and uh you can share music. You can be a part of the fun that we do and uh, just hit one of us up. It'll be a lot of fun. So with that all being said, appreciate you tuning in. You've been listening to Musically Inclined. <laughs>